So what true crime does is it hypes murder. It focuses mostly on white victims, mostly on white women victims, attractive white female victims, right? More than 200 true crime podcasters are investigating the case. Just today, web sleuths drew attention to this shadowy group caught in the background on police body cam video near the house around the time of the murders. All right, let's go to the forensic side of this now. Uh, this is a hard one. FBI profiler, host of Inside the Criminal Mind, podcaster Andrew Brinkley. us now it's good to have CNN you. Chief Thank Law you. Enforcement Analyst John Miller and retired FBI profiler uh, Kathy Canning Mello. She's also an instructor of criminology. Let's bring in former FBI Special Agent and Navy SEAL Jonathan Gilliam. Jonathan is Casey Jordan. She's a criminologist, an investigative profiler, and a behavioral analyst. A criminal profiler and author of Journey to the Center of the Mind, James Fitzgerald, for his expert uh, opinion. Listen to some of these questions he was asking. Quote, why do you choose the victim or target over others? Did you prepare for the crime before leaving your home? What was the first move you made in order to accomplish your goal? After arriving, what steps did you take prior to locating the victim or target? How did you leave the scene? Hmm, sounds a little odd to me. to uh, People's History of Violence, the podcast where we go entirely too deep in histories, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, assassinations, affairs, terrors, and trials. I'm your co-host, Isaac. And I'm your co-host, Peter, and we are doing uh, what what we like to do, which is bringing you the news. The latest, the greatest, hyper, on the cutting edge news. Yeah, so first we'll start out with news about our show itself, and uh, I'm happy to welcome on board two new patrons, Thomas and Chrissy at the $10 tier. Thank you so much. Your support means a whole, whole lot. Real frankly, the support of the whole community here has kept us going and Mm -hmm. has kept us doing this project, which we really love. But yeah, we don't do news normally, do we? Yeah, I was doing a joke. Yeah. We don't do the news. We do old stuff. That's part of why we don't do the news is, frankly, uh, neither of us is a comedian. Yeah. Uh, I'm not able to... And really, I just find the the tone of a lot of, like, news talk showy podcasts, something that I ultimately don't like and and can't keep up with. Like, I, I don't... I wouldn't like to do, like, a... A historical true crime podcast where we review news stories and be like, "This cop got caught on misconduct." Oh, yeah, yeah no, I can't really pull that tone off. Uh, but the news kind of intruded in, as it does sometimes, mm. with criminal history. And uh, I don't know I was uh, reflecting on a lot of things, especially with since we talk a bit here about where fiction and fact with crime and history kind of intersect and how one manipulates or confuses or obfuscates the other. And I was thinking about that, especially with this um, murder in Moscow, Idaho, of the four students at the university there. First off, we obviously acknowledge the victims and their families here. I do think that there's a lot of uh, media products and podcasts out that that really 
hang their hat on acknowledging the victim so that they can go full force into whatever bit of kind of like gruesome morbid mm. interest that they actually want to get into right but i i think we're trying to be about understanding how historical forces operate at this tiny little level of a traumatic mm. um, event like a crime or a murder but this one was particularly strange and weird in kind of a grotesque meta way mm. and uh you're able to kind of vouch for me on on this one peter but i did predict a lot of how this would turn out and i predicted it folks if i'm if i'm lying i'm dying and i'm not at all happy to say that yeah uh, God, he's uh, blue. i it, it, because i kind of didn't want it to be true I, I i said from the beginning that the and this isn't me trying to do some kind of like bullshit mindhunter thing just for my experience with the criminal justice system this looked like a person who wasn't actually doing the crime for what they call like a paraphilia like a, a sexual purpose or a revenge killing or whatever i thought that it looked like someone who had like a vaguely parasocial relationship with the victims and decided to kill them because they wanted to do a murder they thought they were the own the, you know their own character in like a slasher film mm-hmm. and so when it turned out that this guy who is innocent until proven guilty, but I'll, I'll talk for a bit about the pretty damning alleged evidence against him. When this turned out, this guy, Brian Koberger, appears to be a, the, the most likely suspect and is indeed the arraigned and in, indicted murderer here. This was borne out, and it kind of in a bafflingly, like, hyper-real uh, way. Yeah, so what we're dealing, you know, a lot of the times when we deal with the historical elements the, the historical forces that impinge on a crime. We're talking about political history. We're talking about social movements. We're talking about economic forces. And we will get into things that impinge on that with this case. But what we're actually kind of talking about here is sort of a vernacular intellectual history, which yeah. is one of the things that I study on my own. And, you know, the, the, intel, the, the history of ideas, and particularly of the ideas of people outside of the academy, and namely, you know, it, it may not be the noblest set of ideas or the most elite, but the ideas surrounding crime and sort of the culture of uh, true crime fandom, for lack of a better term. Right. Because that is where, that is the milieu from which this suspect comes. Yeah, and... I, I may have been skipping ahead a little bit, but I guess why we will feel comfortable and more comfortable than, than sometimes we do on this podcast in saying, you know, we're, we're talking about this guy as if he's the killer to make certain points is uh, from the affidavit that was submitted when he was indicted. Uh, there was a familial DNA uh, match and a match in, in this vernacular context just means of these loci on this DNA profile that was recovered at the scene and this one that was recovered in his parents trash you know there appears to be a very close relationship and one in which he can't be excluded and which 99.8 percent of the population can't you know actually it's substantially more than that but you get my drift that dna profile that was at the scene was recovered from a knife sheath left beside the bed of where one of the victims was killed um, specifically in the button area there so that has a very very close relationship with the crime it's not like a discarded cigarette butt that might have been left at a party or you know the touch dna on a doorknob or some shit like that it was connected to an object connected to the weapon that was used in the case or at least presumably used in the case added on to that the police have 
surveillance footage showing the movements of his car, the getting going for all the way, you know, the 15 or 20 minutes from where he lives to the victim's house and back at various places along that route, along with cell site data that appears to show that his cell phone was traveling along on there. And then to corroborate that, they have surveillance footage from various like businesses that he went into where his cell phone showed that he was close to there. So it shows that the cell phone was just traveling to someone else. So the evidence is pretty damning that this guy, Brian Koberger, did this. Why I find this of interest at all is Koberger was basically a seemingly voracious consumer within the, what we could call that kind of the broader true crime community. And, uh, you know, I, I've had people like um, in talking about this, sh this show uh, with me kind of ask, you know, you talk about crimes, crimes that really happened. Aren't you a true crime show? Mm -hmm. And so it, it's something that's kind of in search of a, of a definition here, which I, I think we'll get into. Obviously, true crime in specifically in the, the podcast and media format, streaming documentaries, that sort of thing has exploded, but also the kind of fandom participatory community around it has exploded as well. It's a gigantic industry. I, I even heard uh, just an offhand account from uh, this LA Times journalist who said it's basically like a very, you know, it's it's expanded so much that there's people who just uh, kind of walk around with cameras hmm. and trying to interview victims of crimes because maybe they can sell it to someone oh, as a true crime documentary. But that's not really the point here. So to kind of um, tease out what I mean when I say Koberger is a part and also a consumer and apparently a maker of the yeah. true crime stuff and why that matters is a uh, true crime uh, well, for one thing we should say that like the genre as far as it's definable is actually about 98 to 99 percent murder mm. which is partly interesting because it used to be that like there were a lot of different types of crimes that were of like major public voracious right. interest like heists yeah uh, for example or just general organized crime or or murders that were you know a, the product of right other entrepreneurial crimes, not just murder for the sake of murder or murder due to personal motives. Right. And it's, it's murder for personal motive that has become since really since the 1960s and seventies as kind of like this growing part of it until by the 1980s, it dominates the genre. That's the kind of paradigmatic obsession of true crime. Although the kind of umbrella can encompass everything like a miscarriage of justice narrative like mm -hmm. a person who's being wrongfully accused or you know the occasional uh, mob crime will mm -hmm. get rolled in the true crime genre but it's really dominated by these seemingly uh motiveless and extreme crimes yeah like, or, or like motivated by so so as far as i could tell it's like mostly serial killers and then it's like wife killers basically or or people killing you know, someone they were intimate with. Right. It's kind of like we're talking about um, a market that's dominated by these paradigmatic yeah. types and also the uh, activity of of looking through the evidence about mm -hmm. them. Um, if it's an unsolved one, the kind of potentially participating in the resolution mm -hmm. of a particular like unsolved uh, apparent serial killer cases and so on. And uh, I should say that like, you know, we, we've talked in the past on this, podcast about like very condescendingly mm. about true crime and how we're not trying to do a true crime narrative and i'm not saying that uh, i like hate true crime think it's stupid stuff for girls mm, yeah um 
No, I actually love reading uh, a lot of uh, true crime narratives and documentaries, that sort of thing. I think that in large part, the reason that they're popular at all is because you have this uh, kind of collective endeavor to solve a case and that you can work on and then match facts to it. I think I just watched like an episode of Forensic Files like a couple hours before you came in. Uh, and that there's a, there's a fact of the matter, right? Someone did it or they didn't. Yeah. And that's that has a, a very, you know, salient value in our in our society. Right, which is so often consumed with like vagueness, you know, people going back and forth over, you know, people's narratives and people's feelings. And speaking of someone who, you know, also does literary criticism, <laughs> I'm entirely in favor of that kind of discourse, but it's also good to get down to the nitty gritty sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but I, in general, I, I think that we can understand why people like police procedurals mm-hmm. or or true crime narratives. It's not just because like there's a, a gruesome aspect yeah. and, and complete morbid fascination. It's also the right. ability to kind of master that morbid yes. fear. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, that, that's why I know the author of a book called The Rise of True Crime explained why the audience tends to be about 70% female. Jean mm-hmm. Murley, that's her name is because in, in her interviews with uh, women who are particularly into true crime, it's because they feel like they can master this. Uh, it, this is a way of mastering or understanding the fear uh, that any man could be a predator. Right. Is then you can look for signs. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it provides some, it, it, it provides like a, not just a language or even a series of languages, different codes you can master to kind of walk through the, you know, very confusing labyrinth of modern life. Right. So I don't mean to say like I hate true crime or believe that the genre itself is responsible for anything, but I think that you know we've talked about how it's dominated by this particular type of crime narrative, the serial killer or the uh, killer entirely motivated by internal psychological motivations or like more extreme things like spree killers, mass killers, and so on. And I think that that's a reflection of the fact that true crime, as distinct from, say, the history of a crime or a criminal history, mm. is a genre where a writer or a journalist or what have you is able to extract facts of events and then put them into, with some artistic license, into a consumable, mediated product, mm. whether it's on a TV show or a magazine article or... A book, and I mean that was, of course, like pioneered by the True Detective magazines mm-hmm. in the twenties, fifties, sixties, and whatever. But uh, you know, the big strides in it were done by highbrow or higherbrow <laughs> literary writers. Yeah, there's definitely a relationship with the new journalism of the sixties, right? I mean, Capote, Truman Capote, was called one of the new journalism people. Um, you know, even if true crime doesn't always involve the author narrating their investigation, as it often does, there is still this kind of play with the standards of journalism and with na- novelistic techniques that the new journalism of the 60s and 70s associated with, again, Truman Capote, Norman Mailer, Joan Didion, Hunter S. Thompson is known for. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying here is I've been searching for a long time as to what I found, like, wrong 
with this thing that otherwise I like I liked to consume and mm-hmm. why, why I found it distinctive. And I realized with this particular thing that true crime, essentially the reason that the genre, the market focuses on um, these narratives where there's not an externally motivated killer is because the focus of the camera and the narrative can then simply take place um, on current neoliberal American societies Mm -hmm. and other societies' standards, which is to say this individual is responsible for everything and the sole task is to track them down and mete out a suitable amount of punishment. Mm. So uh, even though I actually agree with uh, China Mieville's assertion that like kind of reading about horrifying events like gothic literature, horror literature, and so on, and understanding them is actually deeply humanizing. It gives us a, a different level of historical and material intelligence. I actually think that this kind of recycle product is becoming this kind of a deeply toxic reflection of our society. So it's not the bad product, but like... It's not the crimes, and it's not necessarily the the consumers of the product. It's the... We're not, we're not trying to hate on the players here. We're hating on the game. Yeah, but, and I, I mean, I guess I'm saying is that it's the the recirculation of true crime is just contributing to people's like lack of understanding of crimes why they happen their own society yes um and i actually i think that uh, to some extent detective fiction even though it doesn't real it perhaps because it's severed from yeah facts entirely does a better job of situating the crime within all of the the circuits in the society yes. that's made it happen this explosive dramatic event which even if it statistically doesn't happen that often is something that can't ever leave kind mm-hmm. of like a radioactive uh, element right introduced into the environment of, mm-hmm. of people or community like i think detective fiction often does a better job by virtue of the fact that it is severed from facts so even if it has like a contrived plot line there's a a deeper attempt to understand people's motivations with regard to other people mm-hmm. there's the the archetypal narrator who by putting himself kind of as this like detached observer of society mm-hmm. kind of assumes a more scientific perspective right. in the form of the you know, noir detective or the, mm-hmm. the national hammock detective mm-hmm. yeah the um you know you see this in your schwen creamies you know your uh, your stick larsons or whatever too um, you know, a lot of the stuff that's considered the best crime fiction these days, I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, often comes from these uh, social democratic countries. Sweden, yeah. Denmark, Norway. Do you also have the, the trend of tartan noir uh, from Scotland, you know, Ian Rankin and whoever. I haven't read a ton of those guys, but uh, at least part of it is the part of the themes seem to be like, okay, we've. Uh, developed this society that has supposedly like solved most of its problems or at least solved the problem of problems and that is actually a relatively humane society compared to say the United States but here is what's here's what gets shoved under the rug right it doesn't necessarily need to be a left-leaning message and you know Larson was a leftist he was an anarchist but it can go back and forth didn't he like donate he tried to, to donate. He group? tried to donate all of his money to some sort of leftist group, but he didn't have a proper will. He was a poorly organized bohemian <laughs> type, and actually, it's it's also kind of sad because uh, he meant uh, to at least set up his 
you know, common law wife. Yeah. Uh, but the family who he hated, who were like exactly the kind of Swedish burgers who he said were like behind the whole social democratic state. These like very self-satisfied, nasty people, uh, right. supposedly, I haven't met them, that uh, they, they're keeping all the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, not giving any to the wife, the yeah. you know his long term uh, partner, which is disgusting affair. Yeah, but um, the point is, is that uh, you know, I mean, so I'm not a big fan of like Mickey Spillane say, but Mickey Spillane's work is also situated in this broader context. In his case, specifically the Cold War right. and the end of World War II. I mean, it's racist and sexist and everything else. And it, it starts to bring in the idea, so okay, instead of the Dashiell Hammett detective or the Chandler detective being this sort of, he's, he's alone and he's an observer, but at least part of why he's able to do that is because at one point he was immersed, he was the same as the people he's tracking. The Spillane hero, most predominantly Mike Hammer, is he's, he's alone in the sense of he's, a, he's an ubermensch. Right. right. He's the baddest, hottest coolest guy around and he will he'll just put a slug in your guts and that's it so it's kind of in that case it took on some of the aspect of the superhero some of the aspect of the uh, western hero and some of your more derivative westerns and uh, in that way probably helped enter the stream of this kind of individualism that would mark the true crime genre i mean in particular and, and we probably we probably give Sugar Uncle Jimmy too much airtime, but mm. I do think that there is a, a kind of a deep element of historical understanding, mm. even if he deliberately, like very deliberately, attempts to put it in as the narrators these like highly reactionary, yes. just absolute like blood-minded characters. Yes. We're talking about James Elroy. Folks. James Elroy. Anyway, you, as you pointed out in your review a long while ago, uh, Mike Davis said that James Elroy's narrative style is such that it takes these dramatic arresting events and drains all of the uh emotion and humanity mm-hmm. out of them until it, i think he called it a forensic banality yeah and the thing is is i i feel that the and i've, I've thought about this like for a long time ever since re- like reading your your article on it but i sort of thought that like in a way james elroy is like the evil twin to mike davis yeah yeah there's some and, and you know uh, mike davis is one of the few contemporary figures who i admire uh, as much or more than james elroy r.i.p uh, r.i.p to a real one mike davis king i mean he wouldn't want to be considered a king uh comrade comrade uh the first console yes <laughs> but i th- think that that forensic banality he identified actually in a way, allowed for a kind of higher consciousness in thinking about horrific crimes because it reduced everything, even that event, to something which is the result of historical processes. Mm-hmm. And this, it, probably like the best example of that, I think, is the one, in a, in a way, you probably would never call it true crime, but mm-hmm. in a way, true crime book that James Elroy wrote, which is his own autobiographical memoir, mm-hmm. My Dark Places, which contains... All of the true crime tropes. Yes. He, he more frequently than any other writer has seen insults himself as this obsessive mm-hmm. detective who apparently for 30 years just obsesses over his, his mother's death yes. without trying to solve it. Yes. And then obsesses over it trying to solve it with an actual uh, very salty detective, Bill Stoner. Mm-hmm. Who, <laughs> I love that his first, uh, his first encounter with Bill Stoner is Bill Stoner 
says the first thing you have to know about the LAPD, James, is it's a white supremacist institution. <laughs> okay, but so when I say, like, I think of Elroy, and I'm probably wrong about this. I'm not that illiterate guy. <laughs> but when I say, like, Elroy, I see as, like, the evil twin of Mike Davis. I mean that he has this, like, keen historical process eye that I think only grew sharper in my dark places where he, like, in this kind of opening scene where he describes the evolution of El Monte and how his mother came to be there. And he gives this whole written tableau of like forces like the Dust Bowl and capitalism just yeah El Monte being the town right. in which she was found and murdered right yeah 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 and it's part of part of L A basically yeah part of like the it's it's in L A County but like yeah. not part of, at least at that time it wasn't part of L A City okay. yeah and he describes these forces as just like moving swaths of people just like around like stage mm. props yeah like set pieces into like cheap motels mm -hmm. and dive-ins and, and shit-kicker apartments, mm -hmm. in his words. And it brings them into this eventual violent collision with each other. And he describes it in such a kind of like, um, it's done without this kind of like forlorn examination or angst like you'd have in like, say, Truman Capote. Mm -hmm. It's done with this d d just attached, hard-boiled narration of like mild amusement mixed with like universal yeah. contempt. Yeah. And that... That might be like almost productive in a way mm. for how we think of this, you know, uh, minus his uh, disturbing collection of antique racial slurs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, whereas Davis, I mean, even when he's pointing or was pointing to these apocalyptic possibilities or apocalyptic actual happenings in some cases in California and elsewhere, he always had this, you know, there always had to be the reminder, well, we have to organize and do something and we can. And these, he could be somewhat sanguine, I think, about the possibilities for resistance on the part of the poor and the working class of contemporary Southern California. But you kind of have to be because if you're, if you're writing about this stuff, because you can't just be like, well, no, nothing, nothing's going to happen. We're just doomed. Well, at a minimum, you know, it Davis would write things that were very much like that same description of like the evolution of El Monte mm -hmm. as a town, except they just wouldn't talk about how like dirty and cheap yeah, and yeah, shitty yeah, it all yeah, was. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he's um Elroy's Elroy's also on the record as uh not being a fan of serial killers. He's he's profoundly yeah, bored he's by bored that. About, you know, like uh, one of his lesser known books. Uh, actually is about a serial killer, clandestine. Mm. But even that is, I won't go into a whole thing about it. it it's, I don't think it's one of his better books, but it's still more interesting. And he has the serial killer at one point, not quite meet, but at least see Charlie Manson in jail. Like he finagles away to go and get a look at him. And he gets a look at him, he's like, this guy? Really? Um... <laughs> Yeah, when you, that, that feels like something. I think there was a passage in My Dark Places where he refers to him as Chucky Manson. <laughs> Just this, like, kind of, like, belittling. And even at one point, when he's talking about the killer of his mother, uh, and he talked about it in an Unsolved Mysteries episode, truly one of, like, the great, like, like series is in with regards to not mm -hmm. just true crime but like political crime yeah, yeah. political mystery yeah. and engaging like a wider audience in that um, but James Elroy went on there with Bill Stoner of the LSO and made a plea to the audience but he also talked about how if he found out that the killer of his mother was dead so no no criminal mm -hmm. justice ending to this mm -hmm. 
he would try to track him all the way to his cradle to find out how he ended up this way. Interesting. And that, I think, is a more worthy endeavor. And the reason that he might be bored by serial killers is, and frankly, I think all our audience should be bored and roll their eyes at the notion that serial killers are are worth profound thought, is um, these don't happen that often. Right. And when it does, it's because there's some screws loose. Yeah. The guy's head. Whereas the systematic violence of society occupies mm-hmm. a lot more of the pain and suffering mm-hmm. people feel, you know. And even even with stuff like serial killing, one thing that doesn't come up that often is the, the closest thing to a real politics of serial killing is they go after disposable people most right. of the time. Yeah. They go after the indigent sex workers and so on if you really want to if you if you consider serial killing one of the main problems in our society which is a a take then the main thing you would want would be to end the criminalization of sex work encourage sex worker organizing and for their own ability to protect themselves uh and also and for things like universal health care universal health care universal housing yeah uh if you're if you're that worried about serial killing that will work a lot better than the death penalty. No, exactly. The The formula has not changed since the late Victorian era in Jack the Ripper. It's mm-hmm. mostly awful, screw-loose people with themselves having hurt people, hurt people, traumatic right. histories, um, hunting down people who are made vulnerable yes. by the social system. So it's like the, the social system has a major role there, but yeah. it's not... It's not part of the tropes. It's not part of, like... The, the narrative, for the most part, usually, I, I have found with True Crime Podcasts, the extent I've listened to them, most of them are done by what I would describe, I hope not too patronizing, as well-meaning liberals, who usually do give, like, they would, they would agree that women uh, in general, and especially poor women, sex workers, the indigent in general of, of all genders, are vulnerable, are made more vulnerable, and that that's not good. Yeah, it's a really like it's a really massive kind of broad genre at this point that's kind of swallowed up a lot of other kind yeah. of ways of journalism or ways of talking right. about crime. And, and frankly, you know, there's a lot of different approaches. There are some that I I think are actually more broad and social minded than others. Like um, In the Dark season one was a really good one, mm-hmm. but. On the whole, and I think you can really see this in the true crime forums and posting communities about this, if you've ever waded into that (laughs) viper's nest, uh, the cut product is largely a recitation of stories about internally, demonically motivated killers. And we've been talking a little bit around this, but largely what happens when you have this kind of cut product, where you can take the facts of a killing, this Mm -hmm. explosive event, and make them into a, a story, a narrative, is it can be made and is made mm-hmm. most of the time into a, a morally instructive mm-hmm. narrative. Uh, and it's not really surprising here. We're um, in a society where on a deep collective level, all or most collective labors delegitimized mm-hmm. or done for private ends except for the you know, eternal and right. seemingly growing night watchman state yes. and the prosecutorial and security state, that that is the thing that people feel permitted to engage in. 
Right. And like, uh, you know, another sort of influence on this podcast, documentary filmmaker Adam Curtis made uh, n- numerous documentaries on the, the most basic thesis of which is that the elites in society and that society is, in fact, uh, considerably more under the thumb of elites now than it was at the beginning of his project, at the beginning of when he starts depicting things in the 60s, that they really can't promise much in the way of a better future. The only thing they can do is try to defend against the nightmares that often they themselves were involved in helping to create. So he cites specifically the neoconservatives and the nightmare of Islamic terrorism when in fact, when they were cold warriors, some of these neoconservatives were involved in helping to spread militant Sunni Islam around the world that helped generate these jihadi groups. But I think we can also extend that to the realm of true crime. Yeah, in fact, I, I would say true crime has is, is become more effective as one kind of cultural product has become more effective in giving a consumable product to an audience that gives them both a, a fear, right? Fear of the demonically motivated mm-hmm. killer. You not only can, can should you not, but you, you shouldn't consider the things that made them that way because that will just lessen your resolve. Here. Yeah. And also a mission, which is mm-hmm. something that is generally lacking in a society, doesn't seem to have a collective mission anymore if it ever did. Mm-hmm. It's... it's, it's and so since you can't promise the, you know, the future of a better social democratic world or something like that, you can motivate yourself by waking up every day and learning more about crimes. <clears throat> and in the case of you know, people on web sleuth communities and, and forum posting boards and stuff like that, uh, investigate the crimes, investigate <clears throat> unsolved crimes. Now, uh, I don't know if you've caught as many uh, horror stories about when this goes wrong yeah, as I have. But... Mostly I remember the Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. A, a particularly bad example. But even like tiny cases, if they, get to, if they happen to get noticed mm-hmm. by documentary or true crime community, a lot of uh, you know, victims and mm. friends and stuff get called and messaged and stuff Jeez. like that over and over again by people who are on a mission. Right. And, uh, well... A part of our audio got clipped out. But I thought it was worth mentioning that Peter and I talked about how before Koberger's arrest, the swarms of true crime fandom were essentially stalking the boyfriend of one of the victims for no other reason than they decided that the killer must have known the house very well. They even contrived theories about how he must have used the victim's phone to call his own phone and then left that phone at home to manufacture an alibi because he must have done it and the police were stupid for ruling him out. Uh, you can imagine the effect that that probably had on a guy who also just had his girlfriend or ex-girlfriend uh, stabbed to death. Not surprisingly, there's been little contrition. I more think that that's a depressing commentary on the society, not just people's lack of understanding yes. of social norms, but the fact that like people feel like they don't have a mission at right. all unless they're invested in this case. Right. And what we're talking about here is, if anything, uh, you could argue that it's they're the the more innocent way stations on the road that culminates for now at least in QAnon. Right. Because it's the same basic dynamics that drive QAnon just kicked up several notches of madness.
of the discovery of her body is in many ways the moment of my birth because it's the genesis of my detectives obsessions with the murders that they ultimately become consumed by the die was cast for me on june 22nd 1958 after my mother's murder all i wanted to read were crime novels novels of detection true crime books and anything pertaining to violent crime and psychosexual aberrants at age 17 my father died i went from bad to worse i was no choir boy before that time but boy oh boy things got worse i drank used drugs broke into houses and stole things drove around in stolen cars shoplifted did spurts of county jail time from 1965 to 1977. My life was going nowhere, and I wanted a real life. I hadn't been with a woman in years, and I wanted to write. I wanted to write dark, evil, well-defined, perverted, powerful, compelling crime fiction. By 1994, James Elroy was ready for the real thing. Detective William Stone of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department arranged for Elroy to examine the official case file. Then, there was a face staring back at Elroy from the file, a suspected killer. Because he was dark-haired and olive-complected, he had become known as a swarthy man. If the swarthy man is alive, I would like to bring him to justice. If we identify the man and learn that he's dead, I want to go back and trace this man's roots back to his crib to find out why this event happened. You know, which kind of brings us to Brian Coburg right mm -hmm. now, because to me, from what has come out in the news media so far about his history. Uh, the first thing I noticed actually came from Reddit because this guy had like like five or six sock puppet accounts. Hmm. And he was posting all of the time on subreddits about the Moscow murders case. And I'm not saying that Brian Cover is the first killer hmm. to be involved in his case, but if you're familiar with these forums, the thing that they that where the, the paranoia and obsession gets really, really heightened is people on like web sleuths and various crime subreddits will believe that the killer that they're after is actually on the Reddit talking to them and they'll start, you know, accusing each other. It's it's kind of like at the you know in the in the denim of the original uh 1960s and early 70s uh JFK assassination underground there were various like trading of a finger pointing as to who was a CIA agent. <laughs> And, and who wasn't? But Koberger was actually doing it. He was the, you know, the boogeyman, or at least made himself into the boogeyman that they feared. And this was after being a criminology student who was uh, seemingly a voracious consumer of these accounts. He studied under a professor who specialized in BTK's killings. Mm -hmm. I know there's people who have gone back now, are reading back into this murder, like, isn't this kind of like what Dennis Rader? In Kansas, and the answer is uh, no. Yeah, uh, uh, like they weren't bound, were they? 
No. Like, my, I don't know a lot about BTK, but I know it stood for Bind, Torture, Kill, and it yeah. sounds like he only did the one of those. Yeah, and, and also Dennis Rader did his stuff because he was both sexually and kind of sexually sadistically yeah. um, motivated mm-hmm. on the crimes. Koberger seems to have, like, narrated himself to mm-hmm. others. Is like, and I, I, I know I'm plagiarizing this from somewhere, but uh, I can't remember where, but he was kind of like a human neutrino. Hmm. A atomic particle that just kind of like passes through the lives of other people without really interacting with them mm. in any significant way or forming any deep attachments. At least that's how he narrated his life in his own mind. But mostly he just seems to be been kind of a, a cloistered middle class guy, grew up in a gated community, a little kooky or whatever, mainly depressed and alienated, um, struggled with. Uh, opiate addiction. Hmm. Don't know if it was specifically heroin addiction. Right. Um, had been in rehab a couple of my, a couple of times, but discovered his uh, his feeling of purpose in criminology. And I noticed it was uh, that this was recounted by a friend at 2018. And the way that Koberger talked about his interests, he was like, "I want to study the minds of criminals." It was right around the time of Mindhunter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> on Netflix. Yeah. Which I even kind of like that show, but I definitely liked season one. Yeah. Uh, Season two got a little focused. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and it's, you know, I don't, here I am being the psychologist, but I've also, you know, been reading Mark Fisher lately. I know I'm late to that party, the, uh, you know, uh, cultural critic. Being late to the party is what we do. That's right. We're we're not paid to be on top of things. We get to the bottom of things. What it makes me think of is, you know, we say that he's not sexually motivated, and he clearly doesn't seem to be in the same sense as a BTK killer. But, speculation here, if he was born in 94, he's 28 years old, so he would have been part of that, like, first generation, most of whose, especially if you were, like, kind of a dork and you didn't get laid in high school at all, not that I would know anything about that, um, you know, uh, whose early sexual experiences are almost entirely moderated through screens. Right. And whose, like, whole sexuality, you know, so many people, especially boys and men, their whole sexuality is mediated through what amounts to voyeurism, but, you know, a legal kind of voyeurism. Right. And, and, and self-narration, right? Because it's yeah. also the first generation who grew up with social media, where you're constantly being asked to narrate your own life. That's a little bit of speculation yeah, about flow. the different, different, like, different forms of aberrant psychology you might get that might be based on... Yeah, I mean, I mean this is, since we're doing the full psychological speculation and mm-hmm. why would you have a podcast if you're not right feeling free to speculate and, and i've said this to others i don't think he had a deep relationship to his victims mm-hmm. because i think they were chosen as his victims simply because of sort of how they look and act mm-hmm. which is to say that in his mind they just came from central casting mm-hmm. of victims in sorority house massacre yeah yeah i i'm not trying to to denude that or we don't agree with that folks rid that Uh, people of any you know deep meaning but it's sad and disgusting how pretty could get reduced that in a person's mind um but to get back to this question of his purposelessness because you know we're not talking about an underprivileged person or anything like that i I was brought back to you know recently um brace belden was on uh an episode of chapel trap house and he actually had like a a long talk about how um, when he was addicted to various drugs, the interesting thing for him is actually gave him like this huge sense of purpose because you mm-hmm. had a job every single day mm-hmm. at every hour, which is to go get 
more drugs. Right, yeah. You even made, they made light of it, you know, like, there's potions, mm-hmm. you, have to, you have to go yeah. on quests yeah, yeah, <laughs> to yeah, get yeah, more yeah. money to get the drugs. But obviously, you know, you know purposelessness and anomie is, you know, it's been talked about since sociology began. It's been mm-hmm. talked about since Emile Durkheim, and I'm not going to be able to add any special commentary to that. But what I can say is that the fact that you have to kind of like write your own script or so on has been, you know, a problem since you know, the dawn of modernity mm-hmm. and the end of the sacred canopy of various medieval institutions and that slowly get peeled back. But I, I think that, in, and obviously socialism was supposed to be an answer to the loss of that mm-hmm. and consequent social atomization, mm-hmm. but within, but unified to a, a new scientific and right. and within the light of reason perspective yeah it wasn't just oh we're going to distribute things better economically as we were going to create a new society where everybody would have the purpose of building this new society together yeah there's a there's a wonderful quote at the beginning of uh speaking of you know how this ties into small time murder Mm. There's a wonderful quote at the beginning of Blood Simple, which I won't be able to spoil for you. Uh-huh. I'm going to have to insert in the podcast because okay. you still haven't seen Blood Simple. Hey, what? But, Can't bother me. Now, in Russia, they got it mapped out so that everyone pulls for everyone else. That's the theory, anyway. But what I know about is Texas. Down here, you're on your own. The, um, you know, the sense of having purpose we actually talked about a little bit on the second Rosenberg episode and, and how that might be possible. Um, it's not a utopian idea. It's a wish for something rather than nothing. Mm-hmm. With Koberger and how this ties into true crime, you, you kind of clearly see a pattern where he starts out with this sense of uh, complete purposelessness and needing to invent an identity. And he does turn to serious hard drugs early mm. on and then the new sense of purpose is from this kind of participatory true crime obsessive genre mm. which he wasn't just participating in as a guy who listens to podcasts he wanted to become seemingly the ideal of true crime fiction these days which mm. is a, a, a behavioral analysis unit. yeah and, yeah and i'm not going to go on a rant about this but Probably the most fucking useless people at the FBI. Oh, yeah. What are the, any, I, I mean, I imagine at this point, you know, they give them plenty to do, but you have to wonder, like, what are they doing when there isn't, like, a serial killer to, to, go, to run around and do Manhunter with? The, the thing is, they, they make it seem like it's, like, a process of divination, but as far as, like, building a, quote-unquote, building a profile of the suspect, it's just a series of deductions and exclusions. Yeah. From evidence that you already know. And right. Then, then they give themselves like a little literary license. So like you have a footprint that's a size 12, mm-hmm. right? At the crime scene. That excludes like most heights of people. It actually excludes like a massive portion of the population. Just yeah. being a size 12 footprint. Yes. Or like the way the crime was done might be indicative of a person who knows the house. Yeah, right? yeah. And doesn't know the house. I remember there was all kinds of Mindhunter speculations about this case. Yeah. Before anyone actually knew anything. Like I heard stuff like, why didn't the dog bark? It right. must have known the person. Like, do you know the dog didn't bark? Yeah. Were you, you there? No. no. It's the same thing. It's 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 not, you know, and I don't want to crap too much on him, but Thomas Harris has a lot to answer for, <laughs> yeah. um, both in terms of making serial killers 
these brilliant allegorists most of the time, right? Like Lecter and the Tooth Fairy and, you know, Buffalo Bill and whoever else, they do these, you know, the crimes they do have these, like, poetic allegories to them. And they're, you know, they may be horrifying, but they're, you know, these sort of works of art. But, you know, that's not really how serial killers are almost ever. Like, there may be some, like, symbolism to some of the stuff they do, but mostly it's just them... And you'll also notice that for the most part, um, the Thomas Harris serial killers don't go after, like, you know, the lowest on the totem pole of society. Right? No, they do, like, really big time. Yeah, they do. Yeah. They often, you know, Lecter, most often, because he is sort of the hero, uh, in a way, often is depicted as killing people who kind of deserve it. And then the others are depicted as killing, you know, middle class people with a lot of resources most of the time. Yeah, the sort of Hannibal Lecter-oid murderers that they come to admire for their allegorical compositions, if you will, of their murders, and that they're, you know, people of taste. They're they're not the run-of-the-mill 80s people, essentially. And you have to you have to figure at the time they must have thought that was you know horrifying. I don't think that they set out to actually make people think that Hannibal... I don't think Thomas Harris initially meant Hannibal Lecter to be a good guy from the... From no, the def- definitely not. He just wanted to like set up a good foil opponent. Like yeah. You can't just have this he later intellectual he, profiling right. guy and then he, not have right. a genius killer. He leaned into there. it, I think. He leaned into the Hannibal as, as superhero by the time you get into the later books. But pop culture being what it is, eventually takes Lecter on as you know, an anti-hero. And you have to wonder, will there be any kind of cultural mutations that will see this guy as anything other than, you know, the kind of pathetic, craven asshole that he is, and, and what those mutations might look like. I, I mean, the deep irony here is that I think a, the kind of flip side, the, this, or just the, the second edge of having an unmotivated or, like, psychotically or psychopathically motivated killer or criminal is that you can imagine them, or at least kind of enigmatically put yourself in their shoes as a person who's like free of external motivation, external compulsion, right? Right. If someone's doing a motiveless killing, and this is is what attracted Ayn Rand to that guy, Mm. if someone's doing this completely like excessive, unmotivated murder, then they're not someone who's a sad sack like the rest of us right. who's trying to, yeah. you know, Hence pay bills, get yeah. money, or whatever. Yeah, they're, they're like beyond those needs because they're psychotically motivated. I mean, that's the same thing that attracts anyone, and I think greatly so, to like the detective archetype is they're, right. they're so obsessed that material concerns just fall by the wayside, yeah. you know, family concerns, all that mm-hmm. stuff. But it's supposed to be like the inversion of that. The other problem is he also helped spread this idea that, like <clears throat> Isaac said, that serial killer profiling is like divination and literary criticism all rolled up into one. That it's like, you know, and, and that they probably solve the majority of cases, which of course isn't the the, the, the funny part of season one of Mindhunter that I think is just completely lost on the audience mm-hmm. is that... Fincher and the writers are really implying, without going too overboard on it, because, you know, John Douglas and others, like, really kind of co-signed the show and were, like, promoting it Mm -hmm. to a degree, um, they really imply in a lot of the episodes that... It doesn't work. 
not only does it not work, but that it's, it's kind he's kind of a fraud. Like, yeah. he's kind of a charlatan. We're talking to serial killers. Serial killers. New terminology. So you're just gonna say and do whatever you want. Yeah. And he just, it happens to work sometimes. Yeah. And the society of the 1970s is such that, in the FBI is such that they're like, my God, hmm. this is what we need. We need someone who can just penetrate the minds of these yeah. horrific killers and thereby give a pu the public an answer to, right? You know, a terrifying series of crimes. Yes. Which maybe you know Thomas Harris was an answer to. Mm. But the fact of the matter is, is you know we we can like criticize and sneer, but it's like kind of criticizing or sneering at a drug. Mm. Like it still feels good. Yeah. And the question is like. It is is not like it's is true crime bad and should are you bad for like liking it right and to be clear no you're not uh -huh. you're not bad for liking it you're you might good. be bad for other reasons you might be bad for other reasons but if you're a subscriber you're good you're good uh the answer is like what like how is it or how do we get out of a society where people feel such a desperate lack of a purpose and an omi and desperation that they invest their lives into what are you know pablum narratives that mm. they can then participate in and obviously I, I feel like you know that it's one thing to be have a sense of purposelessness in a society that feels like you know you're getting ever increasing wealth because mm. then maybe you can just can you know, you can consume your way out of not feeling like you have a purpose or an identity, right? You can just be like a tech bro, or, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you can become really interested in a particular thing of fashion. Right, or, or, you, or just get really obsessed with anime, or, yeah. Yeah. You know, all, but it feels different when you're in a society that is not growing economically, mm -hmm. in which you might have less gadgets over time, in which seems to be, you know, everyone kind of acknowledges, even the people who don't believe it, you know, know in the back of their heads that we're heading towards ecological ruin. Yeah. So, yeah, to, to, to some extent, this show is kind of a way, I think, you know, do a small part to drive out of the malaise by going through it. Mm. So rather than avoiding true crime or, or these individual true crimes and sneering at them to kind of open up the entire rest of the board mm. and understand why they happen and how the, the fictional depictions influence people's thoughts. Yeah. And also, you know, cover what I think are way more interesting yeah. ones, the political yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, you know, our investment and in our various projects is in the development of critical thought and the opening up of a world that often seems closed off that critical thought allows for if you follow it rigorously. And that's why I'll, I'll say again, that little quote in the beginning of Blood Simple is really, really applicable. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking, joking. But speaking of, of side projects, you have a side project. Oh, yeah, that's and right. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now to, uh, to promote, to, to chill. Okay. Um, it's called, it's a podcast. It's a literary criticism podcast. I review books. Isaac has mentioned them before that I do it, but I do it. And mostly I review it for myself because I don't like trying to pitch book reviews. And what is the podcast called? Yeah, I guess I should have gone led with that, huh? It's called Reading in the Time of Monsters. Where's that Where's that uh, That phrase from, Peter? That's, That's from Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist who said of when he was in Mussolini's jails, the old world is dying, 
the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. So I thought, what, what better time to make a criticism podcast? You can find it for now at my Substack. I'm still working out RSS feeds and stuff, but eventually you should be able to see it at other podcatchers. But we'll put the link to my Substack in the show notes. Yeah. So uh, again, to all our listeners uh, and our patrons, especially thank you, and our new patrons, Thomas, Chrissy, thank yeah. you very much. Uh, Thomas, judging by the last name of your profile, I'm. Uh, Apparently hiding out after a, maybe a Chicago attempt on John F. Kennedy. Mm. We'll see. Anyways, yeah. take care. See you next time, Thanks. listeners. See ya. It's dinner time. Yeah.